On Afterwards this week, Dr. Paul Offit of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the author of You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, the long and risky history of medical innovation. He argues that from the first blood transfusions 400 years ago to the hunt for a COVID-19 vaccine, risk has always been essential to the discovery of new treatments. Well, how do we know it was effective? We knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. We knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. I mean, those were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. But for the flip of a coin, those children could have lived long, fulfilling lives. He's interviewed by Johns Hopkins University epidemiologist Dr. Emily Gurley. More after this. Dr. Offit, I'm so happy to be talking with you today. It's my, the pleasure's mine. Thank you very much. Okay. Obviously, the themes uh, in your book are very relevant for what we're going through today in the pandemic. And I know you said you started writing the book around the time the pandemic began, but can you tell us where the idea for the book came from and uh, why this book now? I, th- I think the, the emotion for this book actually um, came from the fact that uh, I am a child of the 50s and I remember the, the polio epidemics. And and what I remember from that is one, how devastating and that, that pandemic or that that yearly epidemic was, how much it affected my mother. You know, we were not allowed to go to, um, you know, swim in a public pool. Me and my two first cousins would swim in these little plastic pools in the back. Um, and, and so and so Jonas Salk made a polio vaccine and he made it by taking the virus, growing it up, purifying it and inactivating it with a chemical. So you were inoculated with whole killed polio virus. He tested it in 700 children in the Pittsburgh area and, um, and he found it to be safe and induced an immune response that he felt comfortable would be protective. And this is coming up now because I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and we are on Tuesday going to consider a, a several thousand child study for the 5 to 11-year-old. So I'm, I'm getting to that in, in this context. And so he didn't want to, he, he was happy. He said, this is it, I've got it. Tells his wife, Donna, Eureka, I've got it. But nonetheless, the March of Dimes wanted to do a big study, and that broke his heart. He didn't want to do that. And he didn't want to inoculate children with a placebo vaccine during polio season. But nonetheless, that was what was done. So we had 420,000 children got Salk's vaccine, 200,000 children got placebo, and the vaccine was declared a year later by the person who headed that trial, safe, potent, and effective. And those three words were on the headline of every newspaper in the United States. Church bells rang out. Synagogues held special prayer meetings. Department stores stopped to announce that over the loudspeaker. It was over the voice of America to all of Europe. At last, polio can be conquered. Well, how do we know it was effective? We knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. We knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. I mean, those were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. But for the flip of a coin, those children could have lived long, fulfilling lives, but didn't. And I think that's something we don't ever realize, which is the human price that is invariably paid for knowledge. And it's it's coming up now with, with regard to these vaccines that we're going to be considering next Tuesday for the 5 to 11-year-olds. Mm-hmm. I was reminded over and over again while reading your book just how grateful I am that I'm alive and raising kids now and not in the 50s or not in previous times 
where there were so many diseases that killed kids. In particular, the story about diphtheria and how it strangles kids is is very compelling. Um, Are there any diseases of the past that you would compare to COVID-19 in children? Well, one would be polio. I mean, polio, like uh, SARS-CoV-2, is is largely an asymptomatic infection. Most children with polio uh, were were had a mild intestinal illness. It was a summer intestinal virus. Only about one of every two hundred people infected with polio, primarily children, would actually develop paralysis. So that's why it was so frightening. It was frightening because you didn't know who was shedding the virus. You didn't know who was contagious. So everybody, therefore, became a potential person who from whom you could contract that virus. That's very similar to this virus. I mean, what made SARS-CoV-2 different than, say, SARS-1, which kind of raised its head in 2002, or MERS, which raised its head 10 years later, is that those viruses, when they infected you, caused you to have pretty severe illness. So you, you, you knew who was infected. So you could put a moat around those people, quarantine those people, and then effectively stop the, uh, the what was a potential pandemic. Not this virus. I mean, 50% of the people who get infected with this virus typically catch it from someone who never had symptoms. And that was polio. Same thing. Okay. You also give many examples in the book of how things went wrong and how um, in the development of vaccines and, and therapeutics and how those tragedies gave rise to new policies and new organizations within the U.S. government to ensure safety and efficacy of medical products. Um, So where are we today and trust with those institutions? uh, And if we've gone awry, which I think many would argue that we have, there there are many who mistrust these these organizations to to keep our best interest uh, at, at the forefront where do we go in restoring that trust? Um, I wish I had a clear answer for that. I think we are a cynical, litigious, sort of conspiracy theory-laden society. We, we don't trust. Um, I'm not sure where that break came. Um, my argument would be probably sometime around Watergate when you realize that, that behind that curtain, there were people who were saying things and doing things that weren't necessarily in our best interest. I think there was a sort of loss of in- innocence in some ways, certainly for me, associated with, with Watergate. But, I mean, how do you regain that? I mean, to look at, to look at the current situation. I mean, look at, at uh, the COVID pandemic. I mean, that, there was a vaccine. We, we isolated that virus, SARS-CoV-2 virus, in January of 2020 and sequenced it. So now you have the virus in hand. 11 months later, you had two large clinical trials with the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine, 40,000 people, 30,000 people, showing the vaccine was remarkably effective, more effective than you would have ever imagined. I mean, 95 percent effective initially um, and remarkably safe, but not absolutely effective and not absolutely safe. So then 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 things move forward. Right. Thousands of people get these vaccines, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions get the vaccine. And then you find things out you wish you knew beforehand. You find out that the mRNA vaccines are a rare cause of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle. You find that the Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, the vectored virus vaccine, is a very rare cause of, of uh, something called thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, which means blood clots, including blood clots in the brain, which can be fatal. And there have been about a handful of people who have died as a consequence of the J&J vaccine. Now, now, 
So, so, so the point is, is you, you have systems in place now that can actually detect events as rare as that blood clotting phenomenon of the J&J vaccine, which is one per 500,000 people, or the myocarditis problem, which is one per 50,000 people. So these are extremely rare. And it's only because of, of those sort of tragedies in the past that led to these systems that allow us to monitor vaccines, in this case, um, post-approval. But again, I, I think you're right. I think we deal with an enormous level of distrust. It is remarkable to me that 65 million people in the United States continue to not get this vaccine, despite the fact that the evidence that it can save your life couldn't be clearer. As someone in the scientific medical community, what do you think our role is uh, in, in communicating to the public? And what advice would you give to other researchers about what they can do to play their part to to promote trust in the system and 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 make those systems trust trustworthy yeah, I, I think the, actually the purpose for me in writing this book to, 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 to let people know that you learn as you go. You always learn as you go. I mean, you're always sort of at some level building the airplane while it's in the air. And I feel like that's true now. And 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 that that um, that that has to be understood. But I think what happens, I mean, you could sort of read my book the other way, which is, you know, that here's a series of tragedies um, which resulted in enormous amount of harm. And so, therefore, you can't trust science or you can't trust medicine, but that's the process. That is the process of knowledge. Knowledge is always hard-earned and invariably associated with a human price. And I think that has to be understood. And when people, you know, when people make a choice, they should realize there are no risk-free choices. There are just choices to take different risks. And so the, the, the goal then is to, in as dispassionate way as possible and as an informed way as possible, choose the lesser risk. And when people say, I don't want to get a vaccine, I don't want to risk getting a vaccine, well, they're risking getting this disease. And as an NIH researcher recently said, and I think he's absolutely right, over the next few years, you're going to have two choices, which is get vaccinated or get naturally infected. And natural infection is not the better choice. So I think that's the purpose of the book, to, to get people to understand that we, we learn as we love. Just going back to this meeting that I'm going to have with the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee next Tuesday, you know, we'll consider um, a, a trial in children 5 to 11 years of age of a few thousand children. And then we're about to make a recommendation for a few million children, tens of millions of children. When do you know everything? You, you, you never know everything. The question is, when do you know enough? When do you think you know enough to move forward? And that's really the history of medical advances. The fact is, we live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago. It's because of the, the nine medical advances I talk in, about in this book that they're, they're hard-earned, and they will always be hard-earned. People would, would make the argument, you know what, let me wait till the learning curve is over. But the learning curve is really never over. Well, and as you say in the book, we're, we're always, day in and day out, making decisions in the face of uncertainty, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not. Um, I really liked your analogy of the three bridges <laughs> to talk about the context of decision-making um, or the decision-making in the context of uncertainties. Can you talk a little bit about the three bridges analogy? Right. Well, I guess it's, um, the the uh, let's suppose you have um, a certain um, disorder and you 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 want to try a therapy that is that is well tested. 
you know that that you know that it's well tested, and so um, you're willing to you're willing then to to walk over that bridge because you know that it's well tested, a sturdy bridge. You're good, um, but now you know you're you're you you're, you're the the therapy is relatively new. It's it's a new therapy or a new um, yeah, new biological whatever. Um, it's you know now do you do you want to do that? And and the degree to which you want to do that is only to the degree that you're being chased by a lion. I mean, if you're chased by a lion, then you're willing to cross that more rickety less tested bridge than if you're not being chased by a line. It's actually uh, Christian Barnard, who was the first person to do a human-to-human heart transplant, said that. I mean, the person who he transplanted, transplanted a man named Louis Washkansky, um, he, he was in desperate need of a heart. And, you know, he was willing to be the first person to receive a human uh, heart-to-heart transplant because, uh, because he didn't have much longer to live. So the decisions get a little easier um, in that case. Um, but, you know, look at sort of the 4,000 people who are currently waiting for a heart transplant today. Uh, 1,300 of them will die while waiting. You don't know whether or not you're going to be one of those 1,300. So would you be willing to, to be one of the first or the first to try a pig heart where pigs can be genetically engineered so that you won't reject the heart, so that you won't need immunosuppressive therapy? You want to try that? Now, realize within the last 48 hours, there was a successful kidney transplant where the, the person who received the transplant received a transplant from a, of a pig kidney. And it went well. So do you want to give that a shot? You want to try that? Or do you want to try the well-worn bridge, if you will, of, uh, of getting a heart transplant, um, knowing that, that you'll live probably 15 years on average after that transplant? Or do you want to try the pig heart because you're scared you may be one of the 1,300 who dies while waiting? It's, it's always, at some level, you're always gambling. And I just think what you said earlier was exactly right. We don't like to think we're ever dealing with uncertainty, but we always are. We, we always are. And, uh, and unfortunately, our, our human brains aren't well evolved to think about risk <laughs> uh, and that uncertainty. Um, and when the pandemic first began, um, you know, well, these, these, these examples you give are of individuals, right, making decisions about whether to take uh, a new treatment or get the pig heart or wait and see if you, you know, uh, are able to, to get a human heart transplant. Um, early in the pandemic, I think we were making those decisions more as a collective and, and a population. We needed to cross uh, the bridge <laughs> that may be uncertain, but there was a lion chasing us. I, how, how do you um, compare that individual patient decision-making um, about whether or not to take an intervention with the decisions that we were facing as a humanity early in the pandemic? No, that's a great question. It's a perfect question. I, and so, so, for example, last September, October, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a, did a, did a, a polling in the, in the, of the United States citizens or Americans and asked the question, would you get a COVID-19 vaccine? This was before the vaccine came out. 30% said yes, they would. Now, if you'd asked me that question, I probably would have said no. Let, let me wait to see the data. I, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I think everybody who sits around the FDA vaccine advisory committee table is a skeptic. Let's see the data. Okay, so now now, the, now you've tested it in, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine in 40,000 adults. 40,000 adults have gotten the, this vaccine. It was 95% effective at pre- preventing, um, you know, severe, really any illness, mild, moderate, or severe illness, and, and virtually 100% in pre- preventing severe illness. Okay, so now that's, that means 20,000, because it was a placebo-controlled study, 20,000 people have gotten the vaccine, 20,000. Do you want to be one of the first to get that vaccine, or do you want to wait until a few million doses are out there? 
I mean, the truth is, the father of modern vaccines, a man named Maurice Hillman, who was the, either did the primary research or development on nine of the 14 vaccines that we currently give to children, said it best. He said, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there, because sometimes you find out things you wish you'd known earlier. So do you want to wait? Do you want to wait till there's three million doses out there? In which case, you do risk getting getting an infection because the infection is so common. And this is what we're about. To, we're, we're, we've been there with the 12 to 15-year-old recommendation. Now we're going to have the 5 to 11-year-old recommendation. Do you want to wait? Do you want to wait until a few million children have been vaccinated, knowing that every week between 150,000 and 250,000 children are infected with this virus, that children account for more than a quarter of current infections as this Delta variant has reached down into that susceptible age group, 2,000 children are hospitalized, hospitalized every week, and about 600 children have died. I mean, I was on service last week at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. There were plenty of children in our intensive care unit who were suffering from this illness. So do you want to wait or don't you? And I think this this is the, the um, you know, do you want to wait till more in the population are vaccinated or do you want to get the vaccine? Knowing that the few thousand children that were, were tested in that 5 to 11-year-old study by Pfizer is enough. When do you know enough to, to move forward? And it's a hard question to answer. And you, frankly, you only really know the answer in retrospect. Right, uh, exactly. And and there are some examples of particularly treatments for COVID-19 that received emergency use authorization early on. Uh, hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma therapy are, are two examples um, that were used. And, you know, now we know, well, they don't work and may even cause harm in some patients. And looking back on those decisions early in the pandemic, how critical should we be uh, knowing that they were making decisions in the face of uncertainty? How critical should we be um, in in that uh, retrospective analysis, knowing what we know today? Um, Frankly, even prospectively, those were bad decisions. I mean, I really do feel like the FDA was not at its best during that time. I think they're, they really succumbed to what was a lot of arm twisting by the administration. That was an administration that was looking for a magic medicine. The hydroxychloroquine had never been shown to work to either treat or prevent this illness. Convalescent plasma data were very weak. And, you know, when you had sort of the FDA commissioner standing up in front of the American public and saying 35 out of every hundred people who is infected with this virus will have their life saved by convalescent plasma. I don't know what data he was looking at because that certainly wasn't the data that were available. So I think that was that was awful. And it scared me, I, frankly. I mean, when I actually with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel wrote an op-ed in The New York Times, basically say, fearing the sort of October surprise as we headed to the November 3rd election last year. I mean, I was afraid that sort of the administration would reach its hand into Operation Warp Speed, pull out a couple of vaccines that had hadn't finished phase three trials, especially the two months after last dose to make sure there was no safety problem. And, and if you were going to do that, if you were going to go two months after the last dose, that was going to take you beyond the election date. Um, but, but fortunately, that did happen. And I think the FDA did stand up there. And since then, um, it's been a lot better. But, you know, it's what's so hard about this is that you are making decisions with far fewer data than you normally would um, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned there the encroachment of politics into medical science and public health um, and clearly some negative examples. 
Can you think historically of any good examples of politics uh, interfering in, in uh, <laughs> science and public health? Are there good examples out there? Well, I, I guess what I would say, the, a good example is actually, go, let's go back to the Trump administration. I think the decision to put $24 billion into this effort, I think the, the name Operation Warp Speed, I think was not uh, the best choice. I think it kind of scared people <laughs> that, you know, that, that safety guidelines were being ignored or timelines were being crunched. Um, but, you know, that, that what they did there was they, they basically uh, mass produced the vaccine at risk, meaning that, that they were they didn't wait for the for finishing of the third, the uh, phase three trials to see whether the vaccine worked, to see whether it was safe. They built the building, they mass produced the vaccine. And if it didn't work or was unsafe, they were just going to throw the vaccine away. But this way, when you when you saw that the, the trials were successful, you could roll it right off the shelves. And, and I think that was that was an example of the government uh, taking over a program that was great. On the other hand, if you want to see the, the government uh, on the other side, um, it would be the swine flu vaccine story in 1976. I mean, there was a an outbreak of, uh, of basically H1N1 influenza, so-called swine flu influenza in Fort Dix, uh, um, at, you know, around that time. And um, in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and the thinking was this could be a pandemic stream, but it wasn't. There were there were there were there was enough information probably that probably wouldn't be. There were a lot of advisors that told President Ford don't launch this program, but he did. I mean, the government basically paid for that vaccine. It was a short-lived program. Probably forty million people got that vaccine. It was found to have an unfortunate side effect called Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is a an ascending paralysis that can be severe. It was rare, maybe one per hundred thousand people, but it was real. That was a um, a program that was a disaster in many ways. Hmm. What do you think about uh, the politics at an international scale around the pandemic and particularly vaccines? Um, what has worked in your opinion and, and what should we avoid next time? Well, it's, it's interesting the level of nationalism, isn't it? I mean, so so China has a vaccine made by Sinopharm, which is is this this whole inactivated viral vaccine. That's their strategy, and they and so people in China get vaccine that vaccine, and people who are allies of China get that vaccine. Um, Russia has uh, a vaccine similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson Johnson vaccine, you know, which is is um, a so-called vectored virus vaccine. It's sort of two two doses of that, and that's what you get if you're in Russia. Um, the AstraZeneca vaccine was primarily a United Kingdom vaccine and some other European countries for that. Here, you know, the, the Moderna vaccine is a U.S. vaccine. I mean, that the research for that vaccine was done at the National Institutes of Health. Moderna is a U.S. company. And so that's a U.S. product. So it's interesting how it's it's played out. Definitely there's a nationalism here. I talk about that a little bit with anesthesia in the chloroform was a, a European uh, invented phenomenon. And even though it was actually much more dangerous than, than two other um, anesthetic agents, uh, ether and nitrous oxide. It, it was sort of perpetuated in Europe much longer, I think, because there was this kind of nationalistic sense of pride that they were the ones who invented it. Hmm. Do you think that nationalist uh, sense of pride is also driving vaccine use? I mean, I imagine so, right? Uh, even though some of these vaccines work better than others, it seems that countries who... Uh, have developed vaccines are sticking with theirs. It certainly seems that way. Um, yes, I completely agree. It's interesting. And, and you would think it ne wouldn't necessarily be that way. I mean, so, for example, if the vaccine in China, the whole inactivated uh, viral vaccine were were better, I mean, would we use that vaccine uh, to the exclusion of, say, the, the Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson Johnson vaccine? Mm. 
it's it's not clearly better. So that didn't happen. But had it been that way, would we would we have been different? Or in China, if you look at the, for example, the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines as compared to the the vaccine, the whole inactivated vaccine used in China, it looks like it's better than that vaccine. Nonetheless, they're 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 using their vaccine. Mm. Well, and perhaps uh, at this stage in the game, where vaccine supplies are still fairly constrained, uh, maybe you know there isn't much choice there. But but. Maybe things will maybe things will shift once once that's no longer such an issue. No, I think you're right, and, and certainly this virus is going to be with us for a while. And and as more and more vaccines come into play, I, the New England Journal of Medicine just this past few weeks has a Novavax vaccine, which is a sort of purified protein that's adjuvanted with a powerful adjuvant, and you know the, it was roughly ninety percent effective, including those who are over sixty-five years of age. And we'll see how that plays out. I think what's going to happen over time is as you have more and more experience with this vaccine. Now about a billion people have been vaccinated in this world of more than seven billion people. I think you're going to find out that there may be differences in in the safety profiles, or there will be differences in the safety profiles. There'll be differences in the capacity of these different vaccines to protect against different variants as more and more variants arise. There'll be differences in the capacity for duration of immunity. And so I think we're going to learn as we go, and then we'll see how it plays out at an international level. I'm sure we'll be learning a lot more. (laughs) There's no doubt. Um, So we talk about these vaccines that, that work. Um, and as you already mentioned, I think we got so lucky. There was no reason to believe that we would have such safe, uh, effective vaccines. But when we talk about vaccines in the media and, um, and the general population in, in, um, in lay terms, we talk about how well vaccines work. But of course, scientists don't measure whether or not vaccines work. We measure efficacy, safety, immunogenicity, effectiveness, does it prevent infection? Does a vaccine prevent infectiousness? Does it prevent hospitalization? Any disease, does it prevent death? Does it prevent uh, sequelae? So we have all these, this uh, a myriad of, of outcomes that we think about uh, with vaccines, yet it gets distilled into this uh, general concept of whether or not the vaccine works. Um, so there's a lot of nuance lost there. Should we be concerned about that loss of nuance? Um, uh, and if so, why? So it's been interesting to see this way, the way this is played. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine. So um, that was a 26-year effort. I certainly got to watch that vaccine go from bench to bedside. And I'm only all too grateful that the people who are communicating that vaccine are not the people who are communicating about (laughs) this vaccine. I mean, I think there have been at least three major communication errors with this vaccine in terms of what you're getting at. I think the first is the use of the term breakthrough. Um, If you're given a vaccine and, and you have a mild, mildly symptomatic infection or an asymptomatic infection, you won. That's the goal of this vaccine. The goal of this vaccine is to protect against serious illness, meaning the kind that caused you to seek medical attention or go to the hospital or go to the ICU. That's the goal. It's the rare vaccine that prevents asymptomatic infection or even mildly symptomatic infection. So when Brett Kavanaugh, for example, who's fully vaccinated, um, has an asymptomatic infection, that's carried as a breakthrough. And the word breakthrough implies failure. And so I think it, it sort of damns this vaccine unfairly. I think the second major communication error, and, and it 
really both those occurred at the same time, which is associated with that Provincetown outbreak in eastern Massachusetts. Thousands of men get together, so, you know, celebrate July 4th. Eighty percent of them were vaccinated. Nonetheless, there's an outbreak involving 346 people, uh, most of whom had asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, which was sadly termed a breakthrough. Four were hospitalized. In other words, a hospitalization rate of 1.2 percent. That's excellent. That's as good as you're going to do with the vaccine. Nonetheless, it was carried as, you know, breakthrough. Now, now hospitalizations, that is a breakthrough illness. But, you know, the mild infections weren't. The third communication error, I think, was when President Biden stood up at the podium um, in August and said, we are going to have a booster dose available for American, all Americans over 18 years of age on September 20th, thus sending the message that people, for example, who'd gotten two doses of mRNA vaccine or one dose of J&J's vaccine were not fully immunized. So I think we, we, we have an, an excellent vaccine that continues to have excellent protection against serious disease, including Delta variant, including all age groups, right up to the present time. But you would never know it by the way it's communicated because everybody is scurrying to, you know, to get this sort of cash in on this booster palooza that we've created where I think we've scared people. I mean, we've created this kind of third dose fever. And, and, and if we really want to get on top of this pandemic, um, that's not the issue. I, I can tell you that at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, when people, adults come into our, our hospital and are, are in the intensive care unit, it's not because they haven't gotten a third dose. It's because they haven't gotten any doses. And until we get on top of that, um, we're not going to really, I think, have a major impact on this pandemic. Uh, I I, I share your perspective <laughs> uh, on those issues. And, you know, I, I think it, sometimes it's hard to pull back and see the forest from the trees. But if a new disease emerged today that had the hospitalization and mortality rate of vaccinated people, uh, we would not have shut the world down for that. Um, so uh, I think those are important messages for, for getting back to a, a post-pandemic world. Um, so I want to ask you uh, about your experience um, living in this pandemic where everyone is interested in vaccines and more people, I'm sure, well, I would guess, consider themselves to be uh, experts in vaccines. Um, there was a meme going around uh, early on that that entertained me about the armchair epidemiologist in the in the pandemic. Um, did you have the same phenomena of armchair vaccinologists? And uh, are you familiar with with that concept? Yes, I certainly am. I mean, it is it is certainly an odd time. I mean, I'm, I'm a virologist and immunologist, although trained as a pediatrician and um, you know, suddenly, like, you know, I'm on television, you know, all the time. I mean, which to me means if, if a virologist is asked to be on television a lot, it's probably a sign of the apocalypse, the way I see it. But um, it's, it's just so weird, actually, that, you know, you know sort of that, that, that take the, our, our committee, our FDA's vaccine advisory committee. I mean, when I when it came onto that committee four years ago, we're the people that pick the flu strains every year. So March, we pick the flu strains for September. Right. It's a six month production cycle. You know, it's just a group of nerdy virologists sitting around talking about what flu strains are circulating. Nobody's in the audience. Certainly it's not being televised on C-SPAN. Nobody's asking us for our opinion afterwards. It's never breaking news. It was great. And now suddenly, you know, you're like you're in the spotlight. You know, all these sort of FDA vaccine advisors are in the spotlight. It's just odd. But you're right. In terms of like the armchair epidemiologist or the armchair virologist, I certainly get a lot of emails from people telling me how awfully wrong I am about whatever it is I've most recently said. 
Yeah, uh, there's there's a there's a lot of people in that club. What um, what do you wish that the armchair uh, virologists out there knew? What what do they most often get wrong? Um, I, I think the, the the thing that's hardest for people to grasp, and you sort of alluded to it earlier, is, is the notion of relative risk. I, I don't think we we get that. Um, you know, and, and we're, it's hard to communicate risk. I mean, so for example, you know, the risk of myocarditis is one in 50,000. The risk of, of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome after J&J's vaccine is one in 120,000. I mean, the risk of severe clotting is one in 500,000. These are extraordinarily rare events. Nonetheless, you can see people sort of making uh, policy decisions based on these rare risks. There's not a vaccine I can think of that doesn't have a rare, serious risk. They all do. I mean, measles vaccine can cause thrombocytopenia, a lowering of the platelet count associated with bleeding in roughly one in 30,000 people. The oral polio vaccine was a rare cause of polio. It occurred in one per 2.4 million doses. The influenza vaccine is a rare cause of Guillain-Barre syndrome, one per million doses. But we don't make policy based on that. And I think that that's the thing that's the hardest for me to, to watch. I, I we, we so struggle with trying to communicate relative risk because it, it's people don't don't look at it that way. Just as you said earlier, our brains are just not constructed for that. I think the problem is, is when we crawl out of ocean onto land, you know, assuming, you know, we all believe in evolution, you know, that, that our amygdala and hippocampus were far better developed than our cerebrum, you know, which came late to the game, frankly, too late to the game. You know, when, when New York State Lottery wants to sell its tickets, you know, for a 14 million to one shot, it does it with a simple phrase. It could happen to you. And I think that's the way people see these these rare adverse events. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I, I think if we evolved with an excellent sense of relative risk, we probably wouldn't need uh, formal training in fields like epidemiology, would we? Uh, that would just come built in. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Would, would, would that that were true? I think at the very least, we could probably be better about educating about uh, the scientific method, how it works at the, at the elementary school level. I mean, I remember as a, as a child, Mr. Wizard, see, this is well before your time, but Mr. Wizard was a, a, a guy who, in, in my, on my black and white television set in the 1950s and 1960s, you know, he would always be standing next to like 10, 11, 12-year-old child who he would then explain various scientific concepts like a vacuum, how you can create a vacuum by putting in a milk bottle, a, a flame, and then that would suck like a, a, a soft-boiled egg into the bottle. And he, and he, you know, he used flashing lights to represent radiation. And, and you could be a member of the Mr. Wizard Science Club, you know, which meant that you got a little kit and you got his books. And it was, it was great. I don't know of an, anything analogous to that today. It would be, you know, it was, science was, was in many ways celebrated. And there were certainly far more time devoted to science and technology on television then that it, there or even in the newspapers then than there is now I think obviously the pandemic changes that largely but um, I think we, we need to be better educated about the scientific method and how that how that works so science is I think losing its its place as a source of truth it's becoming just another voice in the room sadly I, I think you're probably right but you know, maybe we can uh, use the pandemic as a way to re-engage young minds in science and the scientific endeavor. And I know I've I've definitely gotten more uh, emails lately from high schoolers who are interested in careers in science. So we we can hope, I guess, that uh, that maybe that's uh, one good thing that comes out of this. 
we can always hope. I, I am impressed by the young, though. I mean, I've done a number of sort of webcasts or podcasts, mm-hmm. you know, with with a, a variety of you know people in their late teens, early twenties, and they're you know they're just really really interested in getting it right. It, it is it is uh, encouraging. I, so I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm choosing to take heart in that. Like uh, we have to find victories, you know, recognize them where we find them at least. Um, so I want to get back to this the concept of risk and. You know, I think there are some people who have been living for quite some time that, uh, in ways, uh, you know, believing that the pandemic is over. Like, there's, there's nothing about this pandemic that's going to have a, a major impact on, on their life. Uh, there are some people even today who can never imagine the end to the pandemic and, or going back to what they did before out, out of fear. Um, I would guess you're somewhere in between. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about the end of the pandemic? What are the signposts that we should be looking for, uh, you know, based on the evidence, based on science, on when the pandemic will be over, knowing that COVID will go away, but at some point will become uh, a manageable endemic disease? Uh, wh- what do you think? What do you think about uh, when the pandemic ends? So I think I think you're right. I think it's it's the pandemic part will will I think will end um, hopefully relatively soon in the United States. Remembering that that, you know, that we are only as good as the world as we learn from this pandemic. Right. I mean, what happened in China clearly affected the rest of the world Um, in terms of herd immunity. I mean, what percentage of the population needs to be protected either from vaccination or natural infection to significantly slow the spread of this virus. Um, that's actually based on two factors. One is the contagiousness of the virus, the so-called R0 or contagiousness index, which is somewhere between five and nine, meaning if I'm infected and I go out into the, the world and, and see everybody I come in contact with is susceptible, I'll infect five to nine more people. And then the second thing is vaccine effectiveness, but it's really effectiveness against contagiousness. So if you, if you sort of plug things into the form based on that's that those two uh, factors it's actually r naught minus one over r naught divided by effectiveness you, you're, you're probably in at least the low to mid 90 percent range for what you need to have in terms of protection it's really uh, almost close to what you see with measles vaccine you need to be in the low to mid 90 percent range we're probably right now at about 75 percent i mean although about whatever 57 percent of the u.s is fully vaccinated um you know, there's at least 100 million people who've been naturally infected and there's overlap between those two groups but i think we're probably at 75 maybe 80 percent now. We are starting to see numbers come down, but that's happened before, so it's hard to take too much heart in this. But I think if we can vaccinate another 30 million people, I really do think we can get on top of this. But you're right. This virus isn't going away for a while. And as long as it exists in the world, we need to to uh, make sure we're a highly protected population. I mean, look at the polio vaccine. We we um, we still give children a polio vaccine every year in this country. We haven't had polio in this country since the 1970s. We haven't had polio in this country for 50 years. Why do we do it? We do it because polio still exists in the world. And I think that came to sort of light in our hospital recently when we were taking in children from Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan polio is still endemic. And so now suddenly our residents and interns are thinking, wait, could this person be shedding polio virus asymptomatically? Suddenly they're thinking about polio where they hadn't thought about it before. It sort of brought it into stark contrast. Yeah, we have the luxury of not thinking about polio very much these days, don't we? <laughs> At least in the U.S. <laughs> right. Um, um, so I wanted to turn to uh, another recurring theme in your book. 
I really enjoyed the stories about the people um, and their humanity, uh, their uh, human fragility, both the patients that you describe and, and many of the vignettes, as well as the scientists themselves. And you talk in particular about some scientists who had really severe moral failings and, and how that was um, their you know, scientific contributions were marred by, by their human failings. And in today's society where we're all judged increasingly, I think, um, you know, we, we know more about each other's personal lives than ever before, um, what, what role should there be for, you know, it, when evaluating a scientific discovery, the person themselves and, and their personal lives? How, how, how should we uh, wrestle with those in a, in a reasonable, productive way? Right. That's a great question. Um, the way, when you publish a scientific paper, there's always a certain level of trust. You assume that the person isn't making up data. Um, the way that, that that gets ferreted out, if you will, is, is that, that, that it has to be reproducible. Other, other people working in different parts of the world, working with different populations of people, if it's a clinical study, then show the same thing. And then a truth emerges. Um, but you're right. I mean, the scientific process is flawed in the sense that it's a human endeavor and humans are flawed. So, so you, you have to have those sort of that kind of um, truths emerge thing associated with other people doing it. But, but one thing I, I think that was important for me in writing the book is you can't really um, legislate it away. I mean, you can put as many sort of systems in place to make sure that things don't happen, but they always happen. I mean, for me, the, one of the most emotional stories, because I lived it, was the Jesse Gelsinger story. I mean, just because that happened at Penn, and I was at Wistar, actually, when that was all happening. So Jesse Gelsinger was a 19-year-old man who had an uh, enzyme deficiency, one liver enzyme he was lacking, which, which, enabled it, which, which made it much more difficult for him to convert food into energy. So he had to take as many as 30 pills every day. So he, but it was just one gene. So he would, would be uniquely susceptible to being cured by gene therapy. And so the gene therapy that was used was actually very similar to, to like the J&J or AstraZeneca vaccine. It was a, a replication defective adenovirus. So an adenovirus is a common cold virus. Uh, you, you can render it so it can't reproduce itself. And, and then you can put the gene in it that this boy lacked. And he was given that, that, uh, that product, that gene is part of a, a, an experiment. And he had essentially like a sepsis-like syndrome where his immune system was sort of overreacted and he, you know, his blood pressure dropped and he basically died of what looked like bacterial sepsis, but it was really an overactive immune response and nobody knew why that was. And eventually they did figure it out and, and that it was one particular protein of his immune system that sort of overwhelmed him. And with that, then the so-called CAR T therapy, where you can um, take someone's T cells, uh, which is a kind of immunological cell out of their body and engineer it so it can kill cancer cells. I mean, this is also another pen phenomenon. What one girl, this girl named Emily Whitehead, received that therapy and she had the same symptoms that he had, Jesse Gelsinger, except this time you knew what had happened to Jesse Gelsinger. This time you had a monoclonal antibody that could neutralize that so-called interleukin-6 uh, protein that had gone out of control. And so out of that Gelsinger tragedy came this, this, you know, this remarkable story of Emily Whitehead, who would eventually 
eventually visit the White House and take pictures with Obama. And, you know, her picture was everywhere. Jesse Gelsinger's wasn't. I mean, we obviously celebrate our victories, not our failures. But because of Jesse Gelsinger, we we learned much. And, and you know, you, you and, and so there were so many things put in place after Gelsinger's death, sort of legislatively to try and prevent it from happening again. But it did happen again, you know, with the retrovirus, so-called gene therapy that was used in France, where, where te- the, this particular virus happened to insert itself right in front of a gene that increased your risk for leukemia. And four of 10 children in that study got leukemia. So you always learn. And there's always at some level tragedy in that knowledge. And I just think at some level, people need to know this. And although it is so hard to accept that, obviously, you'd like to think we know everything, but we never know everything. <laughs> humility, hum- humility has got to stay front and center in all of all of these endeavors. Um, I... That's exactly the right word, by the way. That is exactly the right word. Humility. I mean, when when we were at the beginning of this pandemic and some of the the uh, CEOs of, of Pfizer and Moderna and others say, you know, after they'd done a phase one trial of 10 or 15 people, then started talking about how they could could mass produce millions of doses. You're just shuddering, thinking, be humble. Nature gives its secrets up slowly, grudgingly and invariably with a human cost. Be humble. That That's where that struck me. But you're right. Humility is the word. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just key. And I don't, yeah, it's it's hard for me to uh, imagine not being humble in the face of all this. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I really appreciated that, that point that you made. Um, another cognitive bias that you highlighted, I, I can't remember if it was that story or another in the book, but um, I think it's commonly referred to as the outcome bias, where... We judge a process based on the outcome. So if the outcome is good, we assume the process was good. The outcome's bad, we assume the process was bad or, or inherently flawed, uh, which isn't always the case. And I, I think the example that you just gave is, is you know, uh, highlights that to some extent. Um, what are some, you know, uh, some of that outcome uh, bias where do you see that happening now in the pandemic, if at all? Right. So the question is, is, is to be made wise by your experiences and not just nervous by them. I think that, um, I mean, the, the first antibiotic that was developed, so-called sulfanilamide, it was a product of the German dye industry in the 1930s. It was a breakthrough product. I mean, it could treat meningitis. It could Now you could treat pneumonia. I mean, you could treat gonorrhea. You could treat a variety of, a whole broad spectrum of bacteria because of this, this amazing drug, sulfonilamide. And so it was available as a powder or a tablet form, but, you know, it, it wasn't easily in, 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 uh, ingested by children because they're not so good at taking tablets or powder. So, um, and so one company, um, the uh, Massengill Company of Bristol, Tennessee, um, resuspended that product in diethylene glycol, which was palatable and certainly solubilized this particular um, drug. Um, the problem was is diethylene glycol um, was fatal to kidneys. I mean, it really caused enormous kidney damage. And when this, this product was then released, there was like 240 gallons of it that were released. Um, 100 people died, 34 of whom were children. And it really froze people about this, this drug. But, but what they, they, they didn't understand initially, it wasn't the drug. It was, the, it was the, the way in which the drug was suspended. And so there were people then early on that said, you know, I'm not going to 
take that drug because the drug could kill people, whereas it wasn't the drug. And, you know, and the same thing with like diphtheria anatoxin. There was a, um, and the, by the way, that elixir sulfonilamide disaster led to the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, or as, as historian Michael Harris has famously said, drug regulation in the United States is built on tombstones. And that's always true. And it was true with this this sort of tetanus disaster in the early 1900s where diphtheria anisera, which was generated in horses, um, you know, could, would save children's lives who had diphtheria. But this particular horse was uh, infected with tetanus, so he had tetanus toxin in his bloodstream. And so 13 children in St. Louis died of, of uh, tetanus when they were given a diphtheria anisera to treat their diphtheria. And many people then stopped giving diphtheria anisera and then watched children die of diphtheria because they were scared of the anisera. So but the lesson was, is that we shouldn't, you know, take antisera from horses that have tetanus. And, you know, but it's 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 uh, it's odd the way we take the wrong lesson sometimes because you can fix the problem. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I well, thinking about, um, you know, the discussion about antibiotics and just how revolutionary they were and saving lives um, the advancements in anesthesiology and, and anesthetics you talk about, you know, how many people now remember the days of when you had to undergo <laughs> surgery without anesthesia. Um, and we're, we're, we're a pretty pampered people these days. Um, I think sometimes we forget. And so these were major advancements that improved the, the longevity and quality of, of human lives. But of course, there are downsides even to those, right? These are all tools, and we see now, you know, antimicrobial resistance, uh, you know, threatening human health, um, the real crisis in opioid addiction, people who were treated for pain and then became um, reliant on on those drugs and, and suffer as a consequence. It's a, it's a reminder, isn't it, that. Uh, these are these are tools. They can be used for good, but there's there's always some possible downside. Right, and you have to be careful how you use them. I mean, you you bring up the issue of antibiotic resistance. I remember when I was in high school, I read a book by Sinclair Lewis called Arrowsmith. That book was written in the 1920s. And in that book, Martin Arrowsmith, a doctor, um, is working with bacteriophage therapy. So bacteriophages are viruses that can enter bacteria and kill them. So, you know, bacteria phage, phage means eat. So these viruses could actually kill bacteria because that's all you had. It was the 1920s. There weren't antibiotics yet. Well, we use bacteria phage therapy now at Children's Hospital Philadelphia in certain children who are infected, say, with, with strains of pseudomonas that are completely resistant to antibiotics. And my, 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 mostly you see that in, in patients with uh, cystic fibrosis. So, so, and that's because we now have, have overused antibiotics, used them injudiciously, and now we have Kid, children who are constantly requiring antibiotics who are, who have or are infected with with bacteria that are resistant to all commercially available antibiotics and so what do we do we do bacteriophage therapy it's like back to where we were a hundred years ago on this what's old is new again <laughs> right. 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 um so i i'm sure you're aware of these efforts um uh, even before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about how to better prepare for emerging infectious diseases, particularly in terms of developing vaccines. I, I think the the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa was a you know a, a good example of how we had vaccines that seemed to work well uh, in animal models, but had never been trialed in humans, and so. 
when we were faced with a large uh, outbreak, we had possible tools, but they really weren't developed well enough to be used in people. And that's for a good reason. Usually we don't invest in vaccines unless we can see a way through to getting them licensed, which means knowing when and where people are going to get sick so we can design trials. And so there's a a push now to change that paradigm and to try to develop vaccine candidates, therapeutics as well for some of these emerging infections. And well, I think because of that, even some of the COVID vaccine, you know, the COVID-19 vaccines that we have were, you know, already in development because of this, this new push. Um, But it seems uh, a a different uh, endeavor to, to start testing vaccines in humans um, for diseases that aren't common and, um, and engaging people in discussions about uh, participating in those trials, even if they may not personally be at risk for those diseases now. Um, I'm a big proponent of that, and I think we, we can gain a lot by doing that kind of research. But I wondered your thoughts on, on this new paradigm shift in, in vaccine development. No, I, I think it's it's actually what amazes me is that that when faced with this pandemic, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, that that what we ended up going to in this country were two novel technologies. I mean, for as much as much experience as we've had with live attenuated viral vaccines or whole killed viral vaccines or purified protein viral vaccines, you know, like the hepatitis B or human papillomavirus vaccine, what we went to were the mRNA, was either mRNA or these vectored virus and these genetic vaccines. And the reason is in many ways they were much easier to, to do because you just needed that one gene. You didn't, you know, the, the, you didn't, uh, it was in many ways easier because you knew the gene you were interested in. You were interested in the gene that code for the, coded for the surface protein. So in many ways they were the fastest vaccines to make um, easier than the others. I mean, you're, so, so I think that, that's sort of surprising, but I think what, what, really surprised me negatively was how bad we were at handling this pandemic industry, just with these simple things like making sure that we can have adequate testing and adequate quarantining and masking and social distancing, the kinds of things that could have gotten us under much better control of this pandemic, as was true in China or true in South Korea or true in Japan or true in Australia. I mean, we were we were, we were one of the worst countries. I mean, we have, you know, 4% of the world's population and about 20% of the world's deaths. It surprised me. I wouldn't have imagined we would have been as technologically advanced as we are to to have done that. It, it's just you know we so always claim this sort of American exceptionalism, but we were far from exceptional there. Hmm. What do you? Uh, well, I I think we'll we'll see we'll see how we end up with uh, mortality totals globally. Um, I think we do sometimes fall prey. Uh, uh, to these comparisons because we're actually better at identifying deaths than a lot of other places and we were maybe more transparent about reporting them. So there could be some of that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but you're right. I, I think that there was, uh, you know, obviously initially, obviously initially some, some reluctance to, to engage and take action and, you know, many of the countries that that you just mentioned, uh, who who were on the ball, maybe did a much better job um, at those initial public health uh, interventions. Had a lot more previous experience with emerging diseases and outbreaks than than we have. I mean, when was the last time the average American uh, had their life impacted by an emerging infection? Um, it's probably been some time. 
Right. Well, the 2009 swine flu pandemic was expected to be, frankly, much harder hitting than it was in this country. We didn't have as nearly as many deaths as we had anticipated. But I think we also suffer from the fact that we, we have sort of like 50 different governments. You know, each state is sort of its own government, which makes it hard to have kind of national policies, I think, or at least it seemed to. I, I, absolutely. Um, you know, I whenever we talk about the, the response in the U.S., it's always a patchwork, right? It's, it's really hard to make generalizations, um, except to say that it, it's so complex. Uh, I absolutely agree. Um, you are a prolific author and have so much experience communicating what you do uh, every day to a lay audience. And, and some of these really key, um, important medical uh, and, and scientific discoveries. What advice would you have for others who may be interested in writing a book? <laughs> would you advise it? And uh, what, um, what, what advice would you have on, on being successful? Sure. I mean, I, I, I enjoy writing, so it's, it's fun for me to do that. I think if you, if you want to write a book, um, probably the best thing you can do is, is have, have your idea, write an outline for what that idea is, come up with a proposal. Um, and then when you have your proposal, you, the best thing is to find an agent who can represent your book. And there's, there's easy to find a whole list of them. The so-called literary marketplace is, is a book and now it's online. Um, and then find, someone who's in line with your way of thinking and then see if you can get a publisher. But um, that's not the way I did it initially. I just, the first book I wrote that was at least narrative nonfiction was a book called the cutter incident, which went through this horrible tragedy that occurred with the polio vaccine. And I wrote the book and then I wrote a proposal and then I got an agent. So, because I didn't want anybody to tell me not to write it. <laughs> that was the thing. So I don't recommend that. And if you're going to try and communicate science to the public, do it on long format shows like this. I mean, I was on John King's show, um, Inside Politics at noon. And, you know, there you have at most you have four minutes to try and, and, and educate people about difficult scientific concepts. I mean, you know, imagine the, the, the boot, you know, I was, I was part of a two day booster meeting, uh, last, uh, last well, week or so ago at the, at the FDA. And then I listened to the advisory committee for immunizations practices. So here you have like, hours and hours of slides and discussions because they have, get that down to about two minutes. You know, it's just hard. It's really hard to do it. Um, but th these kinds of programs are great because you get to develop themes. I, I'm a big proponent of long form conversations as well. I've never been good at, at, at getting a point across in four minutes. So I, I'm sympathetic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation today. So thanks for mu so much. For, for yeah, embarking on this long, long form conversation. Thank you. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks again for for all of your wisdom and, and sharing these stories from our history. I, really, they're they're especially pertinent today, and and really great reminders of of what we have ahead of us. Honestly, um, with with vaccines and therapies for COVID. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Each episode delves into news about the nonfiction book publishing industry with publishing experts and insiders. You'll also hear reports on the latest nonfiction bestsellers, trends, and book reviews about books. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.